How's everybody doing tonight? Doing well? Time to get started. Uh, turn back to Daniel chapter 1 tonight. Daniel chapter 1. And everybody should have a blank sheet of paper uh, to write on tonight. If you don't, come see me. Um, it's, it's just, uh, and I tell you what, if y'all would carry a few extras with you, so if somebody slips into the back after you, thank you. Uh, Tell me about last week. What do you remember from last week? What stood out about last week? Okay. When they when they came in, the Babylonians had a practice. They would capture the cream of the crop among young people so they could carry them back and disciple them in the ways of the Babylonians. And then they would utilize these people in their governing. And they would use them to govern their own kinfolks because they would have had a foot in both worlds, so to speak. Um, and so they would, they would use them in that regard. The Assyrians tended to just destroy people in, in ruthless acts of... Um, they, they were just barbarian, the Assyrians. And of course, you remember when the Assyrians came in and, and overran the northern kingdom? You remember that date I gave you last, last week? The ten kingdoms of Israel that... Pretty well ceased to be. Well, 722, yes. And so the people of Judah uh, had over 100 years to learn from the example of that. And still they continued in their ways of idolatry and apostasy. And so God came in, uh, brought the Babylonians in to... Uh, destroy the city and the walls around the city and the temple and carry many of the people of the southern kingdom away into exile for how many years? 70 years. Now, why didn't, he, why didn't he just see to it that all of them got destroyed too? He's got a, he, God always preserves a remnant and specifically from that remnant, what's the big reason? The Messiah, exactly. Now, sad to say, when Cyrus uh, took power, uh, when the Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians and he issued the decree that the Jews could go back home and rebuild, uh, only about 50,000 of them did. Uh, the majority had gotten so comfortable living in Babylon that the majority just stayed there. And what book of the Bible is it that tells us about the state of those who did not go back 
to Israel? Esther, exactly. Esther tells us about what happened with them. Exactly. What else stood out about last week? Absolutely. They must have had some outstanding parents who had trained them in the ways of the Lord. How old did we say these young men probably were? 14 to 17. Yeah. Yeah. What else? God is sovereign. And Daniel certainly saw that. That's the key to the book of Daniel, too, that God is sovereign. And Daniel recognized that. And that's certainly a key in the whole book of Daniel, right? Yes. Christians get caught up in suffering, too. Yep. Okay, good. What else? Yes, yes. Very good. Okay, take that blank piece of paper that I gave you before we watch the video for tonight. And I want you to jot down something. And I'm going to ask a few of you to share what you jot down. But uh, I want to ask you to describe a trial that you have had to endure in your life and what God taught you through that. A trial that you have had to endure in your life and what God taught you through that. So take about mm, four or five minutes. And if I don't see you writing, I'm going to call on you.
Okay, somebody share with us what you wrote. What some trial that you've gone through and what God taught you in and through that. I put down we had to send our son as a U.S. Marine infantryman to Fallujah, Iraq. Hmm. Knowing there was nothing we could do to help him, knowing that there was a good chance he would get killed or blown up hmm. or return emotionally totally messed up in the head. So what it taught me is God says, you're going to trust me or not trust me? Because hmm. there's nothing I could do. Hmm. And uh, we learned to stick with Christians um, and, and to, to pray. Pray all the time. Amen. I prayed every time I drove home that there wasn't a car in our driveway. Hmm. Um, hmm. And until you live that, you don't know. And to wait. You know, it was a, he was over there for seven months getting shot at. Hmm. It was a long seven months. We, we had no choice but to wait and to pray. Okay. Wow. It's not seven months I want to live through again. That's mm -hmm. And just to summarize, he did make it back, he did come back. fine, and yeah. he's married now, and Kevin's yeah, doing well. On his own, and he, he did have one incident where he said an Iraqi was walking towards them and wouldn't stop. He said when Marine, Marine told him to stop, they stopped, and this, this one didn't. And he kept hitting his torso, and the guy next to Kevin did shoot him, and he was wearing a suicide vest. Wow. He was doing his best to get as close to them as he could before he blew himself up. So. Wow. Fortunately, we didn't learn that until he got back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a big one. Somebody else? I would like to share that um, Wilson's death in April, hmm. but I felt like God's presence was with me like I had never felt before. Hmm. Maybe two or three others. Richard? So one of the hardest days of time in my life was 
go to the funeral of that little boy, and you think, well, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? What are you going to say? What are you going to do? And uh, first of all, <laughs> just before that, you know, when the accident happened, the mother comes out screaming, you know, and the little girl saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Mm. I hated me too, because we invited her. But anyway, uh, at the funeral, <clears throat> when we first went in, it was just the, the pastor and I, and uh, the bus driver didn't come. And we went in, and what God taught me was, <laughs> was through the mother. When we first went in, she said, don't feel bad, Mr. Hample. God gave Bobby to us on a Sunday. We took him home on a Sunday. What a thing to say. The mm. person responsible for, you know, the, you know, for happening. But, mm. but uh, and I wrote to him a couple times with parents. It's a very difficult situation. Mm. But, uh, but God, well, I saw God was in what my mother said. It really comes down. Right. We live in a fallen world where bad things even happen to children. Hmm. One or two others. Amen. One last one. 
I've known of some guys that <clears throat> knew God was calling them into the ministry, but because of their job and their security, they said, God, I just can't give that up. Well, God took the job away. <laughs> so he pushed them. You asked for God to help you to take care of your dad, and he, you got laid off. <laughs> okay, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. How can, what are some ways that you and I can purpose? What are some tangible things that we can do? eye gate and the ear gate are entertainment choices and as I mentioned this morning Philippians 4 8 that ought to be a memory verse I would challenge everybody to memorize Philippians 4 8 okay um, 
other, other things, other ways we can purpose in our hearts. Somebody else. Earl? And that's that renewing of the mind, too, as we study God's Word. The renewing of our mind that helps us to be able to stand strong. So along with that, Bible reading, uh, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, church fellowship together, uh, making certain that you and your children uh, are in church. Uh, because we need each other, as he says, not forsaking yourselves together as is the habit of some. Uh, and some were falling by the wayside in that day because they were under heavy persecution. And so they were falling by the wayside and, and laying out of church. They didn't want to be identified and then have a target on their back. But he said, no, don't do that. You've got to be in attendance, pray for one another, and encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching the day of the Lord. So the necessity of our corporate life together is one way we can purpose in our hearts, right? What else? Many years ago, we got out of debt. Okay. And we don't go back. Okay. We have to have a car. We wait until we pay cash for it. Right. Yes. You what? Okay. Uh, she said one, one thing they had done is just decide as a family they were getting out of debt and staying out of debt so they could be free to do what God put on their hearts to do. Okay. Somebody else. What's one thing we said last week? Now, I know... I know different families make different decisions on this, what I'm about to say. But with your kids, when you talk about purpose in your heart and you talk about their education, what do some families decide to do? Homeschool or what? Private Christian education. Okay. Make a decision. We pay for the first two years. We pay for the rest of it. Hmm. Hmm. 
Okay, now one thing, you know, we mentioned last week about the three deportations, 605 when Nebuchadnezzar came in. And notice that chapter 1 says, God gave, God gave the people of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't just that a stronger king or a stronger army defeated a weaker, but God gave the people of Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, right? This was God's doing. And I mentioned last week how Habakkuk really struggled with that, right? God, how can you judge us by a nation more wicked than we are? And God said, Habakkuk, just hang on. In time, I'll take, I'll take care of the Babylonians too. You know, they're not, they're not going to get off scot-free. But sometimes we don't understand God's ways at the moment, right? But as Isaiah 55 says, his ways are higher than our ways. But three different times, 605, 597, 586 B.C. is when he came in and overran Jerusalem. Finally in 586 destroyed the city and the temple and the walls around the city. Uh, I mentioned last week too, as you read Daniel, uh, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, read Habakkuk. goes right along with it. And then, of course, as they get the decree to go back, uh, what's a book to read about the rebuilding? Nehemiah. Nehemiah and Ezra. And then again, Esther tells us about the state of the Jews who didn't go back to rebuild. So all of these books that, that fit together like a glove. Uh, I promise we're going to get on with tonight in, in a moment. But uh, you think about Daniel not wanting to eat of the king's food. Obviously this food would have been dedicated to some of the Babylonian false gods and idols, probably even more to it than that because he requested only vegetables and water. These would be things that, that God gives. Growing the vegetables and the water. Uh, so even the choice of the water and vegetables, fruits and vegetables, things that God gave, showing dependence on God, not not depending on the king or his chefs for anything, but only what God naturally gives. Uh, but Daniel obeyed in the little things. You know, that's where a lot of the big battles of life are won, right? What do people do with little things? They think, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll, you know, I can compromise in the little things. But then what do they find themselves doing in the long run? They end up compromising in big things, right? Because battles are won. Sometimes in the little things, right? So think about your life. It's not just the big whopping things that you might think about that you need to take a stand in those areas. But sometimes it's the little things. Now, we, we were beginning to get into, we didn't quite get into it last week. We ran out of time. Uh, in verse 17 through 21, 
We see what God did for Daniel and his three friends. What God do? Gave them wisdom. Here again, it wasn't just simply that Daniel and his three friends were smarter than everybody else. But God equipped them with wisdom. Folks, ask God to give you wisdom from him. Remember, he was pleased by Solomon asking for wisdom. He said, you know, you didn't ask for power and wealth and all that. You asked for wisdom. So God said, I'm going to give you that. But also, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I am going to give you wealth and power. Ask God for wisdom. God gave them wisdom. Included in that wisdom, he gave Daniel the the, uh, power to interpret dreams and visions. And influence. God gave them wisdom and influence. And you get to the end of the chapter, and what do you see there? Who, what king is mentioned at the end of the chapter? Cyrus. So for all 70 years, think of the kings that had come and gone. A couple of the Babylonian kings, and now the Medo-Persians have come to power. And who's still there? Daniel. Influencing the king's court. God gave him longevity. God gave wisdom. God gave influence. God gave him longevity. So here they were, if you think about it, here they were thinking that they were going to influence these young men. And it turns out that these young men are who ended up influencing them. Right? And Daniel never caved. I mean, folks, think about that. Daniel never caved. Today, people say to, to get ahead, you got you to gotta give in. You got you to gotta play the game. You got to cave. That's Satan's lie, isn't it? Daniel never did. Well, I, gave, I left you with some lessons last week. Make up your mind from this day forward to live for Jesus Christ. Make up your mind to obey God where he has planted you, regardless of the cost. Make up your mind to influence other Christians around you to do the same. And then make up your mind that even in the small areas you're going to obey. You should have those from from last week. Well, let's watch the video for tonight and we're going to keep going. Okay? So I'm going to ask Jonathan if he'd go ahead. Can y'all see the screens pass? Is this board in anybody's way? No? Okay. I'll leave it sitting in.
Hi, I'm Janielle. Welcome back to Thriving in Babylon. Larry Osborne opened this series introducing us to the story of Daniel and the Bible and the godless culture of Babylon where Daniel was forced to live in exile. When we feel like exiles in our neighborhood, office, school, or even home, confused about how to live and maintain faith when facing pain and injustice, Larry encouraged us to embrace the truth that Daniel did. God is in control. In this session, Larry will explain why God allows hardship and trial in our lives and what it can teach us about surviving and thriving where God has us. First, let's hear Sergei share how the greatest hardship of his life, being burned in an explosion, tested his faith. I remember accepting Christ into my life at the age of nine after one night at Iwana's. So I went home, got on my knees, and I was like, I don't want to go to hell. So I need some fireproof. I accepted him into my heart, but not necessarily my life. So I kind of pushed him aside. I said, okay, you, I need you, but I don't want you. We moved to a Christian camp, offered an internship for me. So I went and kind of pretended to be the good Christian guy. And my job was to fill up a big boiler. It was around midnight that I came back to do my shift and uh, put what I thought was diesel fuel in the tank. Um, ended up to be gasoline. I lit the thing from underneath and I saw the flame coming at me and burnt uh, about 23%, 26% of my body, my whole face, back of my neck. My, my forearms were burnt up to a, a sleeve line. I was wearing a t-shirt that was protecting me. That was burnt really bad and realized, oh, well, I need help. Called my assistant chief, so he went and transported me to the hospital. And I was kind of, kind of ticked off just at the camp, because I thought it was their fault. And I struggled with the idea that God loves me and that he's a merciful God. Recovering was extremely hard. I was just like wrapped up in a gauze. So every morning I'd have to take a shower and I'd have to take that gauze off. And that would just take the new skin that had been growing back and would rip it off and allow even newer skin to grow. And they wanted to do that over and over again. I did that for about three weeks. I did that constantly ripping off new skin. That was the most painful. At first, when I would look at my scars, I, I'd become extremely angry uh, and insecure. Will I be able to walk down the street and not have people staring at me? Will I be able to have a wife who can love someone with the scars that I have? Looking back on it, like medically, I shouldn't have been alive, but yet I was. So I became more grateful than I did angry towards God. I had a month in the hospital where I did nothing. So I spent a lot of time in the Word and just praying. And during that time, I became more grateful, more thankful, more fearful at the same time because I knew what he, the control he had. When I was burnt, everything on my neck was torched except for a straight line protecting my esophagus right here. And I realized, you know, that was definitely a God thing. Um, my eyes weren't touched, that was another God thing, because it was just so quick. I was like, wow, so God must exist. He's there and he's merciful. Then that kind of realizing you know, I need Jesus. I have him in my heart, I need him in my life. So and it was in the hospital that Jesus set me on fire, literally, for him. I'm more thankful that I have these scars that I was able to go through this process. Uh, who knows where I would be today? I probably wouldn't be where I am now, um, relationship-wise, with Jesus and other people as well. 
and these scars on my arms, they start a conversation which always leads to Jesus. Life is pretty fragile. Um, God can take it away in a snap of his finger, really. So that in itself made me want to live more for Christ because I don't know how much I've got, only he does, so I don't want to waste a day. Sergei's experience shows us how trials expose the strength of our faith. When our faith is not built on the strong foundation of God's word, our doubts can take us to a very dark place, and we can forget that he loves us and is for us. And that's a scary place to be. Let's consider how we can strengthen and safeguard our faith today to withstand the storms ahead. Do you remember back in high school, there were always a couple of courses that you would do anything you could to get out of, and some of them you've probably had some success getting out of. Well, when it comes to life, there are two courses that none of us ever wanna take. They're the courses called hardship and trials, but unfortunately, they're not electives. They're required courses that we all have to take. And the reason we have to take them is that God uses them to thin the herd and to separate the genuine from the counterfeit. And that's an incredibly important thing. We need to know in our own life, is our faith real or is it not the real deal? And there are times and places, even though we're not called to spend our life judging others, where we also need to know, is that faith the real deal or is that faith bogus? You know, at the end of the day, they not only separate the genuine from the counterfeit, but they also expose weaknesses we wouldn't know we have otherwise, and they fortify strengths that need to be strengthened for the battle ahead of us. Uh, without a test, frankly, there's no way to know the real from the fake. Uh, whether it's a, a material like gold or, or whether it's something that's used in uh, a manufacturing, there always are stress tests that are put on things so that we can understand whether this can be trusted or this is going to break under that pressure. And it's just that way with our faith. You know, what happens is uh, uh, fake and genuine faith look exactly the same. The one thing that tells them apart is that fake faith falls down and never gets up where the real deal struggles to get up and might walk around a bit disoriented and, and, and having some difficulty, but it always gets up. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us that God never will let a trial come into our life that is greater than we can handle. So anytime I see someone who turns away from God because of the trial they're going through, gets angry at God and, and, and walks away, I know that it wasn't that their trial was too great, but their faith was too weak. Because that's what the trial does. It's never designed to break us, it's designed to reveal exactly what is inside of us. Now when it comes to counterfeit faith, there are three very common counterfeits that it's important that we take a look at and not be fooled by. And not only fooled by in the life of other people, but in our life as well. The first one is good intentions. Uh, there's a story in Matthew chapter 21 about two brothers who were asked by their father to go out and work in the field. And the first brother says, there's no way I'm going to do that. What do you think I am, your slave? And the second one says, yeah, I'll go and do that. But when the day was finished, the one who said, there's no way I'm going to do it, had a change of heart and went and worked in the field. And the one who said, oh, yeah, I'll go, never showed up. Then Jesus turns around and he says, well, well, which one did the will of his father? And the answer is quite obvious. Not the one who had the good intentions, but the one who had the good actions. You know, here in America, there are gyms all across the country that make their money on good intentions. And they understand there's a big difference between people who sign up 
and people who actually show up. And at the end of the day, that's how it works with our faith. There's a big difference between those of us who want to start the journey and those of us who actually begin the journey. Now, the second counterfeit that sometimes needs to be exposed is what I call high moral standards. Um, it's a good thing to live by high moral standards, but the enemy would do anything he can to keep us from Jesus, and that includes making us pretty religious. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that even Satan and his messengers come as messengers of righteousness. In other words, they live a godly, moral life without God. And one of the great uh, counterfeits that fool so many of us is we look in the mirror and we think, man, I'm good enough. I, I really don't need any more. I, I remember when I became a follower of Jesus, I, I came home and I told my best bud about it and, and was sharing what God had done in my life. And he was one of the most moral people that I've ever met. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Larry, I'm so happy for you, but I don't really think I need it. Well, truth be told, you looked at his life, I needed it, and he probably didn't. But if real truth be told, we're all sinners, and he needed it desperately. And the enemy was able to use his high moral standards to keep him away from the Lord. Now there's a third thing besides good intentions and high moral standards, and that's a fast start. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story about four different types of soils. Now, there are some where the seed falls and nothing happens because the birds just come right away and, and eat them up. But there are two types of soil where at the very beginning, things seem to be growing wonderfully. And that's how it looks sometimes with people who claim to follow Jesus. They get off to a really good start. You look at them and say, man, changes are being made. This is awesome. But over the long run, nothing happens. At the end of the day, there is only one type of seed that a farmer will ever rejoice over, and that's the one that bears harvest. Not the one that comes up fast, not the one that looked like it was gonna bear a great harvest, but the one that actually bears a harvest. And without time and trials and hardships, there's no way for us to discover, are we the real deal or are we the fake? That's why God makes us take that course. We don't want it but it's not an elective, it's a requirement. In September of 2005, I woke up one morning and crumpled like a heap on the floor in a pretzel. And for the next nine months, I was in this wheelchair and spent a lot of time at doctor's offices trying to figure out what I had. Many of the doctors did not understand what was going on in my body and to have something that's undiagnosed is very difficult because you don't know what you're fighting. I am completely at the mercy of others to do most daily functions. I cannot go anywhere on my own and my mother would drive me about two hours to where I was working at the time. I would teach the students for a few hours and then end up having no strength to even hold up my head. I remember crying out to the Lord and asking him why he would do something like this and how he could still use me. During that time, I was praying that God would heal me and I was praying that God would somehow miraculously take this away from me. And yet the doors closed each and every time I didn't have a lot of strength for each concert and was praying that God would show me the strength. 
The next morning I woke up and something was different in my body and I was able to walk for the first time in nine months with just the strength of the Lord coursing through me. Students who had questioned whether or not God really did exist and were going through difficult times and when they saw God's miraculous healing of my body, they exclaimed that God truly must be real. The music that came out of the students that day was nothing short of a glimpse of what I think Kevin will be like when we are up there. Recently, my diseases come back and I am no longer able to conduct music or to play music. Because of the difficulties that I have faced in my life, I have found a greater depth in my relationship with Christ. And whether God chooses to miraculously heal me, I have seen God's faithfulness in that. And I have seen God not answer my prayers and not choose to miraculously heal me, yet to use me for his glory in ways that I could not imagine. Like Crystal Lee, many of us have experienced pain that has strengthened our faith and deepened our convictions over time. We may never get answers on why we are facing trials, but we have hope that God is using it for our good and His glory. But it isn't always easy to see the good when we are in pain. We may wonder if God is still there. You know, there was a time in my life where I was what I would call a wimp Christian. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, I'd go to a Bible study and everything was going great. God was so good. But if things went wrong, especially if it was some realm of injustice, then it was immediately, where's God? And I know I'm not alone. I've been in plenty of Bible studies, and I know how the prayer requests and, and sharing of needs goes. It, God is great when things are going great, and God is not so great, or God is uh, asleep or off to the side, or, or we wonder where He is when things aren't going the way we think they should go. I'm reminded of a guy named Don. Well, I'll call him Don. That's not his real name. But he came into my office one time, and he was completely upset. Uh, told me that he was just ready to give up on God because he'd been walking with God for about five years now and doing his very best and making all kinds of changes as, as God would stir them up from the inside out in his life. But he had missed out on a major promotion at work. And on top of that, he found out it was uh, because of his faith that he had lost that. He'd kind of been a little bit uh, overboard, if you will, and sharing his faith a few times. And now he's sitting in my office and he's saying, well, what good is it doing to follow God? I didn't know how to answer him because frankly, I thought we follow God because he's God and because we have sins that need to be forgiven. And he promises to adopt us into his family, change us from the inside out and give us an eternity. But somehow from Don's perspective, no, nah, that's not the way it is. And Don's problem was very simple. He didn't understand the process that I call the spiritual boot camp, the preparation that God sends us through so that we can bring greater honor and glory to Him. And the more difficult the battle or the more godless a culture that He's going to assign us to, frankly, the more difficult the boot camp that we're going to have to go through. I have the privilege of ministering near Camp Pendleton, a Marine base. And uh, I want to tell you, before Marines go off to war, they go through some incredibly rigorous training. And if that training was to be cut short, or when they're in very dangerous places, it was to just, like, let's just do it all on the computer, let's do it the easy way, I want to guarantee you, when they get out of battle, they would absolutely fold. There are five traits that we all need to survive, especially in a Babylon-like environment. And each of them come through the hardships and the difficulties of a spiritual boot camp. 
The first thing we've got to learn is obedience. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we are told that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, let me flesh that out just a little bit, because we often think that obedience is when God says jump and we ask how high on the way up, and there's a sense of truth to that. But I really learn obedience at its deepest level when I obey God, even at those times where it costs me to do so or where I don't think his way is going to work. Now, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and three times prayed, is there any other way out? And yet he submitted. He was learning obedience at its deepest level. And you and I can never learn obedience until it takes us not through success, but it takes us through a valley of hardship and difficulty. Now, the second thing along with obedience that we need is perspective. And frankly, you never gain perspective until you're on the backside of something. Think of the first difficult situation you ever went through in your life, or, or maybe you were an athlete and think through hell week for a football team or a basketball team or whatever it would be. Those first few days you're looking at and you're going, what in the world is this? And, and you're, you're tempted to quit. But when you get back on the other side and you look at it, you go, wow, that was really tough, but the reward is so worth it. What you've acquired there is perspective. And we never can get perspective unless we go through the tunnel of hardship and difficulty because it's only on the backside we catch the rewards and suddenly we feel like a mom looking at labor pain that, wow, it was real, but it was incredibly worth it. And then there's a thing called endurance. That's a third of these five traits. And we need endurance, especially in a modern-day Babylon like we have today. And what is endurance? Well, endurance is simply doing the right thing over a long period of time. And we will never learn to do the right thing over a long period of time if we haven't learned already obedience, perspective, that it is worth it. And if it's not worth it quick enough, it will still be worth it over the long run. And endurance is built up over time. One really hard run will not give you the endurance to run in a marathon, but lots of hard runs can take you pretty close to that point. The fourth thing we need is confidence. The ability to know that God is gonna come through. Well, once again, how do we learn that God's gonna come through? Well, only by looking in the rear view mirror of the messes we were in where he provided a miracle. And the more of those that we have, the more confidence we have as we go into the future. And the fifth thing, the thing Daniel and his friends had, it's called courage. So how do we get courage? Well, we get courage when we've been through all the others. At the end of the day, Daniel's courage, his three friends' courage, the courage you see throughout the entire book of Daniel, flows out of a pattern of obedience that gave them perspective, that built endurance and left them with confidence. And confidence to the max in the face of fear is this thing we call courage. You know what? We idolize the battle. We idolize those who fight it well, but we never will fight it well unless we, first of all, go through boot camp. We saw in this session that God doesn't create hardship for us, but rather uses hardship for our good and His glory. Larry explained that hardship and trials do not only help to separate genuine faith from counterfeit faith, like we saw in the story of Sergey, but they also spiritually prepare us for what lies ahead, like we saw with Crystal Lee. What has been the hardest trial of your life, and how has God used it to strengthen your faith in Him? When have you come out on the other side with new perspective and courage to face the road ahead? You can consider these questions and more as you go through the Bible study lesson together. See you next time.
Okay. Um, obviously, the purpose of that video tonight, concentrating on trials, uh, showing us how God uses trials like Daniel went through so that the genuine come to light and so that those who are not genuine in their faith, they're pretty well weeded out. It's kind of a sad testimony that we don't learn much about Daniel's contemporaries. We can assume what that means is they didn't respond to the trial in faith. Uh, but Daniel and his three buddies did. And so trials in our life are to prove the real deal, right? Whether we're the real deal or not. Uh, if God put us in situations we always wanted to be in that were comfortable for us, there wouldn't be much of an opportunity for you and me to be salt and light. God puts us in difficult places so that we can be salt and light and we can make a difference for Him. So in Daniel chapter 1, all of this is being set up. Daniel 1 is kind of like the appetizer. Gets you ready for what you're going to encounter in the rest of the book. Okay? Because Daniel 1 gives you the historical scenario, what's going on, and uh, what led to this capture. And it also sets us up to how Daniel and his three friends are going to be so mightily used because they took a stand. And so chapter 1 gets us ready for all of that. Now before we jump into chapter 2, I do want to just point out a couple of more things. You'll notice in chapter 1 that God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of his supervisors. So if you find yourself in a difficult work environment, maybe you're opposed for your faith, why not ask God to give you favor in the eyes of your bosses? Right? Ask God to give you favor with even the unbelievers that are around you. Ask him to give you favor. You know, you've got you've to take the stand the way Daniel did. You've got you've to be honorable and pure. But ask God to give you favor so even unbelievers around you will be respectful of your convictions in that. And you'll notice also that only God could have done for these young men what he did. Because here they are eating vegetables and drinking water, and yet at the end of the test period, what's happening with them? They're fatter and healthier looking than the other young men who were taking part in the king's delicacies. So you normally don't associate looking fatter and healthier with vegetables and water, right? And yet that's how they looked. Only God could have done that. Only God could have done that. Well, look with me at chapter 2. We're gonna, we won't get very far into chapter 2, but look with me 
at the beginning of it anyway tonight. I'm supposed to let y'all out in t- 10 minutes from now. It says, one night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb for limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. Daniel 2 is one of the pivotal chapters of the Bible. Uh, Anybody wishing to make sense of world history and the powers that have come to be and those that have faded, anybody wishing to understand this has to pay attention to Daniel chapter 2. It's been referred to as the prophetic alphabet. The prophetic alphabet. You know, there's been a resurgence in recent decades about end-time events. Now, why some of that? Probably, obviously, because of what we see going on in the world. People are wondering now, are we near the end or at the end? Is Jesus about to come back? Because a lot of people, quite frankly, wonder, can it get much worse? In polls, it's been indicated that 45% of Americans believe that there will someday be a battle of Armageddon between Jesus and the Antichrist. Scores of Americans now indicate that they believe in a high likelihood that Jesus might now return within their lifetime. Now, I say that simply to point out there's been a lot of interest in end time stuff that we've seen in recent decades. Now, this is good if it points people to the Lord. Okay? If it's just being studied by people to satisfy curious speculation, it really hasn't accomplished much. 
But if it gets people in the Lord in, in the Word and drawn closer to the Lord, then then great. Prophecy should create in us a renewed love for the Lord and a renewed desire to be found holy if he should come tonight. Amen. With that being said, we, we look at these opening verses in chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 will paint a picture of, the, of world empires from 600 years before Christ all across the centuries until Christ returns. Now, this, this image, this picture was given to a pagan king in a dream. A pagan king. With Nebuchadnezzar coming into Jerusalem in 605 B.C., what do we see beginning here that we are still in today? The times of the Gentiles, exactly. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 verse 24, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that begins here. It's still going on. First of all, we, we see here, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams that cause disturbance. In verse 1, we're told when his dream took place. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, plural. And he was so troubled by his dreams that what happened? He couldn't sleep. Now, we've all had nights like this, right? Times we take our troubles to bed with us. He was suffering from a royal case of insomnia, right? The fact that he was king, he didn't escape all this. Now, again, we're going to see in a minute, his disturbance was because of something specific. But oftentimes, those in positions of authority find that Trouble in their sleep only increases, right? The more responsibility you have in life, the more your sleep can be robbed from you, right? Well, here's Nebuchadnezzar. Think about it. He's the, he is the mightiest man in the world at the time. And he can't sleep. It also reminds me of what we read in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6, verse 1, where we're told that that king couldn't sleep either. Well, verse 2 breaks the group down into four different classes. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. Now, folks, what do we know that even today some people tend to do? Take 
checking their horoscope or they'll go to these crazy places. I mean, even here in Concord, North Carolina, up by Christie's Nursery on 29, what do you find? Psychic. Stop in here for a psychic reading. Ridiculous. One New York psychotherapist and, and a psychic counselor <laughs> and professional astrologer cites trade publications showing that Americans spend more than $12 million per month calling these ridiculous hotlines. What's the Bible say about this? Stay away from it. Isaiah chapter 8 verses 19 to 20. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. God's people ought to never be turning to horoscopes and these psychics for insight. What do we need to turn to? God's Word. Now, in verse 3, I I want you to to notice that while verse 1 said he had dreams, there was one in particular that disturbed him. In fact, so much so, evidently he said, basically, I got to know more about this one. What's, What's this one about? Now, folks, oftentimes in the Old Testament, how did God speak? Through dreams and visions. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, In former times, the days of old, God spoke through dreams and visions. In these last days, though, how has he spoken to us? Through his Son. But you go through the Old Testament and see all the different ways that God spoke to people. I mean, on one occasion, he's even speaking to a man through his donkey, right? God was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar here. Now, from verse 4 through the end of chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. That was the language of the day. In this part of the world. 99.9999999% of the Old Testament is written in what? Hebrew. Okay. This portion, chapter 4, I mean verse 4 here through chapter 7, written in Aramaic. It was written in their language. Now, in verse 4, they address the king with typical, elaborate, Oriental courtesy. O king, live forever. 
Now there's a slight interpretive issue in verse 5. In the King James Version, Nebuchadnezzar says, It's gone from me, indicating he's forgotten the dream. Many other translations say, I have firmly decided, meaning he's decided he wasn't going to tell him. Really a case can be made for both interpretations. Either way, it doesn't make a great deal of difference. Whether he forgot the dream or whether he deliberately is not telling it to them, the point is still the same. Nebuchadnezzar knows if they are genuine wise men who could do what they claimed they could do, they ought to be able to tell him the dream too. If they couldn't, then he would know that they're just fakes and frauds. I mean, all he's got to do is tell them the dream and they can get together and consult with one another and make up what they're going to tell him, right? But he knows if they're able to also tell him what the dream was, then hey, these, these guys really know and whatever interpretation they're going to be able to tell me is going to be what I need to know. He tells them if they can't do that, they're going to die and their houses are going to be destroyed. Now with Nebuchadnezzar and what we know about him, that was no idle threat. There's also the promise of great reward if they can tell him. Well, verse 7, we see they're, they're stalling. Verses 8 through 11, they're kind of arguing back and forth with them. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar basically says, if that's your final answer, you must die. In verses 12 and 13, the king was furious when he heard this. He ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. Now remember from chapter 1, Daniel's being trained to be in this group. So he's included in the death sentence. Now he's not on the scene yet because he's probably only about 18 years old. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar's relying on the wise men he's had probably for years. But because Daniel's in training to be a wise man, to be a wise man along with his friends... He's included in this group that's going to be put to death. Now, I'm about to close tonight, but several important lessons here. The inability of human power. And secondly, the inability of human wisdom. Let's think about power. Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man. He was helpless to know what any of this meant. Think about wisdom. With their inability, all the wisdom of pagan religion is debunked. You know, the Babylonians were even known for writing books on interpreting dreams. But they were utterly helpless to be able to do anything with this one. Now, folks, this reveals the true condition of the human heart, right? Apart from revelation from God, human wisdom and human power is worthless and it cannot save. Wisdom and salvation are of the Lord.
Amen. Now, what we're also going to see in chapter 2 next week when we come back together too. History is not determined by kings and presidents and armies and parliaments and congresses. But history is determined by who? God. God. Well, let's wrap up there.